Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department here at the Pratt Library. If you haven't already, pick up a copy of Compass, the library's newsletter in back. Uh, you can sign up for Compass. Uh, uh, this is the May-June copy, and we're working on July and August now. This Saturday, we host the City Lit Festival, uh, and uh, James McBride will be here for that, uh, along with uh, some local authors. There's a pamphlet for that in the back. Special thanks tonight to Akashic Press. Did I say that? Yes, you did. <laughs> Akash is uh, a press whose mission is to promote authors uh, from the Caribbean and African diaspora, uh, and they have a neat lineup. So visit their website. It's uh, A-K-A-S-H-I-C, Akashic Books. We're thrilled to have here today Dr. Elizabeth Nunez and Bernadine Evaristo. Dr. Nunez is the award-winning author of eight novels, both Boundaries and Anna in Between were New York Times editors' choices. Anna in Between won the 2010 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Award and was long listed for the International IMPAC Dublin Literary Award. She also received the 2011 Writer, Writers for Writers Award from Poets and Writers in Barnes and Noble and a Lifetime Literary Award from the Trinidad and Tobago National Library. She is a distinguished professor at Hunter College uh, in New York, where she teaches fiction writing. Bernadine Evaristo has been hailed as one of Britain's most exciting and original authors. Her books have been chosen as Books of the Year nine times by British newspapers. In 2004, she was made a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and in 2006, the Royal Society of Arts. She has written drama for theater and BBC radios four and three, collaborated on a multimedia performance with musicians Joanne McGregor and Andy Shepard for the City of London Festival. Thank you for coming, both of you. Thank you. Uh, we thought we'd start the program uh, by the authors uh, reading to you from their books, uh, and then I'll ask them some questions. Yeah, okay, so hello everybody, thank you for coming. Quality, not quantity, that's what we say. <laughs> So, yep, I'm from the UK, and I, I just arrived in New York a few days ago, um, and I'm on a quick tour to promote Mr. Loverman, which is this book, which is um, a book about a man from Antigua who's lived in London for 50 years. Um, he's called Barrington Walker. He is, um, he's married, he's um, a father, he's a grandfather, and he's also closet gay. So this is a story about a gay Caribbean man. He's been married to his wife, Carmel, for 50 years, who is deeply religious, doesn't know he's gay, and also lovers with his best friend, Morris, and they've been together 60 years. So I'll just let you digest that for a minute. <laughs> um, and we can talk about why I wrote the book and so on um, in a bit. But uh, So the book is told in his voice, Barrington, and he... Um, uh, it's, it's set in the year 2010, sort of going over to 2011, so it's very contemporary, and it's about the end of his marriage. Um, but also, his wife, Carmel, has her own sections in the book. So while Barry's voice takes you through this year in his life, the end of his marriage, we see Carmel's voice from 1960, uh, from when she married Barry at the age of 16, through to 2010. So she has these sections 
um, decade by decade, 1960, 1970, 1980, where we get to understand what she was like when she married him and how her life has changed and so on as she, during the course of their marriage. And you can imagine that she's had a bit of a tough time because she's married to someone who's basically deceived her for a very long time. So um, I'm not Caribbean, I'm not from Antigua, but he speaks with a sort of Antiguan voice. Are there any Antiguans in the house? Like, oh, I'm from Montserrat. You're from Montserrat. By way of Antigua. Okay. So, so I just have to beg your forgiveness because it's just, I have to read it with his accent and clearly it's not very authentic. <laughs> so we've got that out of the way. Okay, so I'll read, shall I just read a couple of pages? Yeah. <clears throat> this is from the beginning of the book. The Art of Marriage, Saturday, May the 1st, 2010. Morris is suffering from that affliction. No, oh, Morris is his lover of 60 years. Morris is suffering from that affliction known as teetotalism. Oh, yes, not another drop of drink is gone past his lips before he leaves this earth in a wooden box, he said just now when we was in the dance hall. Mighty sparrow blasting Barrett the Magnificent out of the sound system. Last time it happened was when he decided to become vegetarian, which was rather amusing, as that fella has spent the whole of his life stuffing his face with every part of an animal except its hair and teeth. Anyways, all of a sudden, Morris started throwing exotic words into the conversation, like soya, tofu, and corn, and asking me how I would feel if someone chop off my leg and cook it for supper. I didn't even deign to reply. Apparently he'd watched one of those documentaries about battery chickens being injected with growth hormones and thereby deduced he was going to turn into a woman, grow moobies and the like. Yes, Morris, I said, but after 70-something years eating chicken, I notice you still don't need no bra. So tell me how you work that one out. Get this now. Within the month I found myself walking past Smoky Joe's Fried Chicken Joint on Kings and High Street, when who did I see inside, tearing into a piece of chicken, eyes disappearing into the back of his head in the throes of ecstasy, like he was at an ancient Greek bacchanalia being fed from a platter of juicy golden chicken thighs by a nubile Adonis. The look on his face when I burst in and catch him with all of that grease running down his chin. Laugh? Yes, Morris, me bust myself laughing. So... There we was in the dance hall, amid all of those sweaty, horny youngsters, relatively speaking, swiveling their hips effortlessly. And there was I, trying to move my hips in a similar hula-hoop fashion. Except these days it feels more like opening a rusty tin of soup with an old-fashioned can opener. I'm trying to bend my knees without showing any pain on my face, and without accidentally going too far down, because I know I won't be able to get up again. While also trying to concentrate on what Morris is shouting in my ear. I mean it this time, Barry. I can't deal with all of this intoxication no more. My memory getting so bad, I think Tuesday is Thursday. The bedroom is the bathroom, and I call my elder son by my younger son name. Then, when I make a cup of tea, I leave it standing till it cold. You know what, Barry? I go and start reading some of that Shakespeare you love so much and doing crossword. What is more, I go and join Jim on pensioner discount so I can have sauna every day to keep my circulation pumping good because between me, you, and these four walls. He stopped and looked over his shoulder to make sure no one was eavesdropping. Right, Morris, 
two old geezers talking about the trials and tribulations of being geriatric and the whole room of gyrating youth wants to know about it. He said, I suddenly noticed last week Mahavaraka's vein. He whispered into my ear so close he spat into it and I had to wipe it out with my finger. Morris, I say, Varica's vein is what happened when you was old man. Get used to it, to it. As for forgetfulness, likely you got early dementia, and nothing you can do about that except eat some more oily fish. As for staying sober, I shut up, because Morris, with his eyebrows scrunched up pitifully, suddenly looked like a puppy dog. Usually he will banter right back, whack me on the head with the proverbial cricket bat. Yeah, thank you. Wait, another part about the two Sorry? of them. Sorry? I, I want to hear another part about the two of them. <laughs> um, between the two of them or maybe between the wife? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so they've been out raving and then Morris drives um, Barry home and Barry's creeping into the bedroom and um, <coughs> his wife is sleeping in the bed. <clears throat> So as, as he's creeping in, he's doing all this spiel. He's talking, talking, talking to himself. Then, I, so he's getting undressed. Then I wriggle out of the sleeves of my shirt, bunch it up in my hands, and throw it into the corner by the window for Carmel to wash. It lands like an exhalation of breath. I like that. Derek Walcott, you're listening over there in St. Lucia. Me no care if you did get the Nobel Prize for poetry. You better watch out, because Barrington Walker's gone steal the linguistic march on you, fella. In spite of my efforts, Carmel's deep-sea breathing stops, and she comes up for air with a kind of watery spluttering, as if she's just stopped herself from drowning. Wifey rolls over and turns on the flowery bedside lamp with a click that sounds like the cocking of a trigger. I go and get a right reprimandation. Is morning time already, Barrington? She is using the three-syllable version of my name. You know how time does pass, dear. Statement, not a question. Does it? Threat, not a question. Why don't you go back to sleep, dear? Instruction, not a question. Oh, I'll have plenty of time to sleep when the good Lord comes for me, and that won't be long now, I am sure. Emotional blackmail, pure and simple. <laughs> In which case, I hope he comes for me before he comes for you, dear. A lie, pure and simple. <laughs> Unless that one with horns and a pitchfork catch you first. I try and concentrate on the job at hand. But when I sneak a glance at Kamel, I see she's getting ready to invade Poland. She says, bringing the stink of cigars into my bedroom again. I sorry. And that rank rum nastiness. I sorry. When you go and mend your ways, Barrington, I sorry. You could have called at least. I know. I am sorry. I told you to get a mobile phone years ago. Am I truly bonkers? A mobile phone so the old girl can track me down any time of day or night? <laughs> Far as she's concerned, her husband is a womanizer, out sowing his seed with all those imaginary hyacinths, merediths, and daffodils. On what evidence? Alien perfume, lipstick on my collar, ladies' panties in my jacket pocket? I can honestly say to my wife, Dear, I ain't never slept with another woman. <laughs> she chooses not to believe me. Um, I'll just give you a, a little taster of uh, Carmel sections, which are very different. So this is uh, 1960. It's her on her wedding night. Um, and 
So she's, she's outside, she's on the swing on the veranda, and Barry's insula, inside, he's drunk, and she's, she's thinking about, you know, being married and what it will mean to her. And as I said, she's 16, so she's very young. Nobody can treat you like a child no more now you're married, not even puppy, who lost his rights over you once your husband inherited them. You go and be a good, deserving wife too, Carmel, isn't it? You've been studying the home economics manual from your school days in preparation. It says, when your husband gets back from work, home will be a haven of rest and order. You go and touch up your makeup and put a ribbon in your hair and have dinner ready in the oven. And if he later and it gets burnt, you're not going to start hectoring him like some of those low-class, bad-mouthed women out there who can't keep man and end up lonely or hag. No. You're going to ask him questions about his day in a soft and soothing voice and listen to his news and complaints with a pleasant smile. You're not going to blow it like Mommy, who should have kept her lip buttoned instead of back-chatting Pappy. Not that you exonerate his badness. And though you feel sorry for her, Mommy tests the patience of a saint, as Pappy keeps telling her. No, you had a plan to catch man, and as soon as Barry started working for Pappy, you was ecstatic started sneaking him the look she'd been practicing in the mirror, waiting for the right boy to come along. And then, soon as he saw you, you turn away with an enigmatic smile. It worked, because he started to escort you to school, standing at the end of the drive in his khaki trousers, ironed like a soldier's, crisp white shirt all smart, smoothly shaven face, and always teasing you. Carmel, you'd look simply gorgeous and simply marvellous if it wasn't for that simply ginormous purple pimple at the end of your nose or those two camel eyes of yours that are so crossed the only thing they can see is each other. Or he'd grab your satchel and throw it in a wide, slow-motion arc into a sun-hazy field of damp tomato and cucumber plants, forcing you to chase him or chase him to get it, or he'd only throw it again. Or he'd do a really exaggerated Charlie Chaplin walk with a tree branch, like he wasn't eight years older than you, but still a schoolboy pranking around. Then there was that one time when you was genuinely annoyed with his antics, because this wasn't exactly your idea of a romantic courtship, and you tossed your head at him and shouted, Go sling your hook, boy! And he stopped jiving around and stood still by the side of the road, head cocked, all serious, and said nothing for a while. And then he said, Carmel, sniffing up his lips and nose like you stank as bad as the manure out there. Carmel, I know you ain't no sourpuss, really. And even though tears filled up your eyes and you tried to hold them back, you couldn't. Barry came over, looking a bit regretful, steered you to the rocky outcrop on the other side of the road, and you sat down. And he said, But I know you a sweet girl deep down inside. You see, Carmel? I am an archaeologist of the human character, and I hereby declare I go help you excavate all of your sweetness. <laughs> sweet girl became his pet name for you, and once you knew that you were sweet deep down inside, you couldn't backchat him no more. You had to be sweet all of the time, or you disappoint him. What you got, sweet girl, you got the cream of the crop, that's what. No man on this island, more better looking, or got a more attractive personality than your husband. You swear it. At Antigua Girls High, you was top, class in your cl- top girl in your class for Latin and French, second for English and history, fourth in classical civilizations, fifth in ancient Greek language, until you met Barry and realized he was clever enough for both of you. Everybody knows you can't be too clever or you won't catch man. There you go. True. <laughs>
true, true. So, this is taking you totally in another. <laughs> Take out your handkerchiefs <laughs> and start crying. <laughs> I'm going to read two short pieces. This is um, a memoir, my first memoir. I've written eight novels, and all of a sudden I wrote a memoir. Um, what triggered it was my mother's uh, death. And so this goes around that. Um, the section I'm going to, one of the, the themes that runs through almost all my novels is this tension between the mother and the daughter. And here um, I, because this is first person and actual, factual, um, is looking at um, her mother's attitude to sending her to America. Basically, her mother says, you're very lucky, you're going to have a better life. Um, you're going to have lots of opportunities, you're going to have a better life. A better life? Nothing could make up for my despair, my utter loneliness, at a time that should have been the happiest of my life, the time before and after the birth of my son. What could compensate me for the feeling of being set adrift in a strange and hostile land, with no one to rescue me, no family in America to support me. I will skip the details of the actual birth of my son. I will go straight to the night before the morning I fully expected to take him home. And part of the detention here is that her mother thinks that there isn't racism, and here's her daughter in America facing it. It is 1976. I'm in Brookdale Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. Though I have no concrete proof, I suspect my husband, D, is having an affair, has been having an affair for months now. He was angry when I told him I was pregnant. We had been married just over a year. I was 30, he was 37. He had been married before. His wife had died, leaving him with a small son. He wasn't ready to be tied down with another child, and he made me feel guilty for burdening him with an added responsibility. He wanted to have fun, he said, and rumors swirled around in my college that he was having fun with one of my colleagues. I went into labor on August 10th in the middle of a stormy night. Dee drove me to the hospital and stayed by my side until I was taken on a gurney to the delivery room the next morning when my son was born on August 11th. I see Dee once later that day, but he seems restless, anxious to leave. He will come and help me pack the next night, he tells me. We can take the baby home early in the morning. The next night, August 12th, a nurse's aide brings me dinner. She clears my tray after I eat. I wait. I'm not worried. The nurse will bring my son to me soon so I can feed him. Dee will be there for the feeding. In the morning, we will take our baby home. Half an hour later, I hear footsteps, two sets. They are approaching my room. A woman enters. She's not a nurse. She is dressed in civilian clothes, a pretty bright blouse under a fashionable suit jacket. She's holding a clipboard in one hand and a pencil in the other. Behind her in the shadows, I see a doctor. He is not my doctor. He's too young to be my doctor, and he is white. My doctor is middle-aged, and he is black. I sit up. My heart sinks. I think the worst. My baby, is something wrong with my baby? The doctor steps forward. He's wearing a white coat. His stethoscope dangles professionally around his neck. Mrs. H., we know what you have done. His manner is that of a judge pronouncing the verdict of the jury. 
My jaw drops open. Done? No time for games, Mrs. H. We have the proof. The woman with the clipboard speaks up. Her tone is gentler, soothing, but her words unequivocal. We have given the baby something, Mrs. H. It will help him with the spitting up. Something, I repeat foolishly, to counter the effects of the methadone, the young doctor says sternly. He has other patients to see. He does not have time for niceties. Methadone? I'm in a nightmare. Soon I will wake up, I tell myself. I repeat my question. The doctor does not answer me. The woman with the clipboard begins to write something on what I could see now is some sort of official form. Of course you can't take your baby with you, she says. You'll have to leave him with us. We have already reported the situation. That's why I'm here. I'm a social worker. I'm here to help you. The room begins to spin faster and faster. I'm in a whirlwind. Voices bouncing and swirling against each other. I hear the words heroin, needles, baby spitting up, methadone. I'm a wild woman now. I strip off my gown. I do not care who sees my body, my flabby belly, my pendulous breast. Where, where I stick out my arms, my nails scratch long ashy lines across my veins. Where are the needle marks? Where have I injected heroin into myself? The well-dressed, perfectly coiffed social worker is taken aback. She pulls her clipboard to her chest, armor to protect herself from the crazy woman I have become. Where I slide my hand down my bare legs, I am trembling all over. The woman brings the clipboard closer to her chest. It is her heart she wants to protect now. The heart I can see is bleeding for me. It's a mistake, she whispers to the doctor. I think we made a mistake here. D arrives later. I am shaking, not so much with anger as with fear. What have they done to my son? Why haven't they brought him to me? I cannot speak. Dee has to grab me roughly by my shoulders and shake me to get me to speak. They have given him methadone. I force the words through clenched muscles tightening my throat. We have to stop them. Calm down, calm down, Dee says. My husband's girlfriend is waiting for him. He is impatient. This incident, that his child could have been given methadone, is an inconvenience for him. Though I do not know this now, the day we bring our son home, he will disappear for a week. So he does not need my craziness, my paranoia, he seems to believe, interrupting his plans. Calm down, calm down, he repeats. I cannot calm down. We go to see the director of the hospital. He has heard from the social worker and the doctor, of course. He's ready for us, ready with his lies. No, not at all. We haven't given your son methadone. But the doctor said, he's an intern. He misunderstood, misspoke. And the woman who was with him, she apologized. It was a mistake. She went to the wrong room. Then I want to take my son home now, not tomorrow, tonight. Well, we can't do that. Hospital rules. What rules? We have to get permission from the pediatrician. I'm his mother. I want to take him home now. There's silence. I wait. The director shuffles some papers on his desk. Mrs. H., his voice is syrupy, patronizing. Mrs. H., I know how you feel. I would feel the same way if I were in your situation, but I can assure you that we have not given your son methadone. As I said, the doctor misspoke. He's young. He didn't understand. We'll take perfect care of your son, I promise. We have to be sure that nothing is wrong with him. The spitting up, you know. He shuffles the papers again. He avoids my eyes. All babies spit up, I say. I'm glaring at him, my eyes on fire. Go home, Mrs. H. Come back Monday. It is Friday. They have already reported me as a negligent mother, an abusive mother. 
my son in need of government protection. The social service office is closed. The staff has gone home for the weekend. I will have to wait until Monday. They do not tell me this, but I know that this is the case. What did I expect my mother to do when I told her what had happened to me? I was in America, the land of opportunity. Everything will work out. Everything works out in America. My mother does not understand American racism. She does not understand that here her class does not trump her color. I have been, um, I'm going to skip. I, have been, I am a college professor. I was a college professor the time I had my son. But my profession, my class counted for nothing when that young, inexperienced white doctor carrying with him years of American history, deep-rooted prejudice that define a black man or woman as less than a white man or woman, walked into my hospital room. He didn't have to ask who I was, what I did. He simply looked at me and assumed. Fixed in my mother's mind are images of Americans she had seen in the 1950s movies she loves. She does not notice that there are no black people in those movies, or if they are, they are saucer-eyed, big grins plastered on lips exaggerated to make them more servile and farcical. Those black people are not in her social class. My mother identifies with the Americans in her social class. It does not occur to him, her that all of them are white. To my mother, Americans are incredibly polite. Even the gas station attendant says thank you. In the department store, the sales lady follows her. I tell her the gas station attendant wants a tip. The sales lady is afraid she'll steal something. My mother does not believe me. So it's just the kind of tension there that I... True story. Everything in here is true. I want to read just this little piece here just because joy is here. Because um, I've, I've, been, I've immigrated to America some 40 years now. And I go home maybe a week, 10 days most for a year. In 2008, I happened to have gone home three times. And that was the year my mother died in August, just by chance. The first time I went home in the beginning of 2008, I went for three months. And I stayed with my mother and father, of course, which was very interesting. The second time I went, it was on a stopover for the conference. And the third time I went, which was three weeks before my mother died, and there was no indication that she would die. She just, she had a stroke and just died. Joy Bramble said to me, Elizabeth, let's go to Trinidad. And I tell you what, we are going there for, to, do, um, to speak to the provost at the University of the West Indies. I want you to come. And she gave me like, I don't know, a minute's notice. I packed my bag and it said, Okay, I'll go. If I hadn't gone, Joy, if I hadn't gone, I would have missed my mother and something very important that happened at our last parting. So my last parting with my mother was at the gate where she put her arm around my neck and said, I love you. And I, that would not have happened. I returned to Trinidad in July. This is and not only that, it happened to be my mother's birthday, the day I left. I mean, this is just weird. Out of the blue, Joy calls me and tells me, let's go. I returned to Trinidad in July, this time for three days. 
I am helping Joy Bramble, the owner of Baltimore Times, organize a Caribbean Women's Conference in Antigua. Joy is originally from Monstrat, but her family was forced to migrate to Antigua when the 1997 volcano on the Soufre Hills blew up, burying almost the entire island under rivers of fiery lava. Joy lives in America now, but feels indebted to Antigua, which had welcomed her family. This conference, her second, is her way of repaying the island for its generosity. She plans to donate most of the, the, much of the proceeds, I think all, from the conference to help rebuild the library in Antigua, most of which had been demolished in a fire years earlier. Joy hopes to interest the University of Trinidad and Tobago in collaborating with her. We arrive on Friday night. We will leave on Sunday late in the afternoon. Sunday would be my mother's 90th birthday. We have no intimations of the possibility, but my mother will die approximately one month from that day. It, it's, it's just amazing. My father, who has not lost the habit of checking off days on his calendar, has not forgotten his wife's birthday is July. As soon as I arrive, he consults with me. What date in July, he asks. I tell him her birthday will be Sunday. Then you must take me to the store on Saturday to get a present for her and a card, he says. What can my father buy for his wife that she does not already have? Some kind of jewelry, he tells me. And I'll just live past all of that because I think that's, a, for me, a very touching scene. But it just goes on to say that, um, you know, when I realized that it, the, the, the meeting we, we thought we were going to have, Joy and I thought we were going to have with the provost, does not pan out. And I say, you know, I feel guilty, you know, that Joy has brought me over there and it didn't work out. And I sort of say to myself, oh, well, um, at least Joy had a chance to meet some people in Trinidad. And then I come to that it's my mother's birthday, that day I am leaving with Joy. And so my sisters are together, and we blow out the candles. And um, after we've blown out the candles and have sung happy birthday, one of my sisters, the one who admittedly is my mother's favorite, launches into a spirited retelling of an incident that occurred on her job in which she came out victorious. My mother, who usually gives this sister her full attention, seems distracted. She does not make the appropriate sounds of approval at the points of the tale where my sister expects applause. Perhaps not literally, but the usual enthusiastic encouragement. My mother's smiles seem forced and her, her eyes are dull. The taxi comes to me while the party is going on. I say my goodbyes to my siblings. I hug my father, kiss my mother. My mother trails me to the gate. I'm about to go through it when she pulls me back. The hug she gives me, her arm locked around my neck, almost strangles me. I love you, she whispers. And I respond, I love you too, mommy. It is the last time I will see her alive. So thank you, Joy. Elizabeth, your book is a beautiful story, a love story. Mm -hmm. uh, in your parents' vulnerability, you are reminded or perhaps discover the depth of their love for each other and for you. You're a novelist, uh, as you say in your memoir. Uh, Anna in Between and Boundaries are autobiographical, and most great novels do come from author's experience. Yet there is still a protective mask when writing fiction. I can only imagine that this experience of writing about some 
very painful experiences in your life was terrifying for you. Tell us about why you wrote your memoir. Yeah, a lot of people ask me that. Was it terrifying? Was it scary? And it's the opposite. It was very cathartic. Um, it was, you know, um, probably because it was time to figure out that relationship between my mother and me. And um, it's not that I want to dump all this praise on joy, but it turns out that it was the perfect ending of the relationship between my mother and myself. So that though we had come, I had spent all that time in 2008, it was only on her birthday, on that day, in that moment, that we made that absolute, I mean, we were building our way to it, but it just came perfectly. And she called me once after that, maybe three days before she died, and she was fine, and remembered that. Um, but you still lie when you write memoir. Um, sure. You know, um, not consciously, it's what you remember, how you remember it. And how you remember it has to do with what you, <laughs> how you want to perceive the situation. Um, I was asked, um, um, a magazine wanted to excerpt, um, I've had some good luck with this, I'm, I meant to say. Um, like Ms. Magazine is excerpting part of it, um, and Oprah.com is doing a review on the 29th, and OprahBookClub.com is also doing something. So, I've, I mean, there's just been a lot of, maybe it's my mother looking down. I've had some good luck with it, but... In the article, when this magazine, this is a scholarly magazine, another one that wanted to excerpt it, and then they said, oh, well, you know, we don't want to excerpt the book that's out. Could you write an article instead? And the article I chose to write was this question that you're asking me about whether there's truth in fiction or, or, or untruth in mem memoir. And I realized something after I have written it, which was, that I have always attributed the tension between my mother and myself to the fact that my mother happily sent me to America. And although my other sisters have left to go for university, they have always come back. My mother has never asked me to come back. And whenever I tried to not ask her directly, but you know, wonder why she has never asked me to come back. Why don't, she talks about how wonderful America is and what a great opportunity and what a good job I have and everything else. But if you have ever read uh, Michelle Cliff's novels, you will see that the immigrant never forgets that. That, that it depends on when you left. That bond between mother and daughter, you know, you want the, the mother to, to do that. So I write this memoir, and in this memoir, I have a scene, which you remember, Joy, when I was five years old, and I remember it like yesterday, when my mother left us alone in Trinidad with somebody to take care of us, and went to join my father in London on fellowship for a couple of months. There were six of us. The eldest was nine, the youngest was barely two. And I've always romanticized that, 
you know, it's a big romantic thing. She was so in love with her husband. Nothing mattered to her more than... Her. She loved her husband more than she loved her children. And she went away with it. And when they asked me to write that article, I realized that the root of my tension with my mother was there. The feelings of abandonment was there. And the only way I was able to deal with that is to romanticize it. And I have always told the same story that, you know what's so interesting about my parents is that they loved, them, they loved each other more than they loved their children. I've always told this story over and over and over. And when I wrote the memoir and I wrote that scene, writing it factually, I finally have to come to the end and conclude it. And I say, oh, well, my mother was 31 at the time and my father was 37 and they had one chance in their life. Isn't that wonderful? So I was still lying. I was still lying. But thank God I wrote it so I know. And... It would have been interesting for me to have asked her that question when she was alive. But Can I just say something here? Um, a lot of West Indians who left to go to America or England had to leave their children in the islands with a grandmother or whatever. Yeah. And lots and lots and lots of those children are very, very resentful. Yeah. Although the, the parents really went away so they could have a better life. And eventually brought them to Canada or England, wherever they were. Yeah. But they still have a lot of problems with that, which is, I guess, kind of... Yeah, but, but in my case, this was romance. Yeah. <laughs> this was romance, because you, when you read the story, you see that my mother just cried and cried and cried and cried when my father went away. And she was unable to take care of us. I mean, I remember at five years old, she was unable. So my older sister at nine, was, we were taking care of each other. She, so in a way, it was good that she went because she was useless to us. So it was a, a big romance. A big romance. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Your book is set in London. Uh, a city with no shortage of homosexuals, really. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Morris lives. I in wonder place. how you know <laughs> this. <laughs> Morris lives in a very closed community. I'm sorry, Barry lives Barry. in a mm. closed community. Um, Morris tells <laughs> Barry, "All right, time for you to step up to the plate. Let's be together officially." And one of Mars's heroes was the gay uh, English activist Quentin Crisp, uh, to which uh, Barry replies, you mean the eccentric poof. I think many people have never heard of Quentin Crisp, the naked civil servant. Uh, would you tell us about him and how he inspired Mars? Okay, so um, does anyone here know about Quentin Crisp? No. One person. Okay, so Quentin Crisp was a gay man who lived in Britain for most of his adult life. And in the, I think it was probably the 1930s, he, was, he dressed up in a very camp and effete way. He had dyed hair, he wore lots of makeup, he was a prostitute, uh, he was a, a local character, I can't remember where it was in London, but he was a very out um, gay man. Um, and a lot of people see him as a trailblazer because he was expressing his sexuality very visually, very obviously at a time when homosexuality was illegal because if you're talking about the 30s, 
you know, 40s, homosexuality wasn't legal until 1968. So Morris, uh, who's Barry's lover, talks about Quentin Crisp as somebody he admires. Don't you want to know about Barry? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you about Barry. Um, so the reason I wrote the book is because um, for those of you who are people here, some people here from the Caribbean, homosexuality doesn't feature much in Caribbean literature. It certainly doesn't in black British literature. Um, and I consider myself a black British writer. Um, and the, the books that I write tend to deal with subjects that aren't covered. They're often subjects that are um, they're written out of the sort of mainstream British narrative. If we didn't have black writers in Britain, then we wouldn't feature hardly at all in British literature at all. So one of my, I see my duty as a writer is to write those stories that haven't been told. Um, and I've written many books and they're all doing that in many different ways. Homosexuality is something that doesn't feature also in black British literature, let alone homosexuality of an older black man. So when I started writing this novel, which I didn't know was going to be a novel, I started writing in the voice of an older black man, and he, he revealed himself as gay. Right? This may sound strange. If there are any writers in the audience, they might understand that sometimes your characters speak to you and start to tell you who they are. And that's how it happened with Barrington. He was, he was uh, you know, I was writing him first person, and he started talking about his lover, Cedric, and Cedric is actually Morris, because I changed the name. Um, and when, when I realised that he was emerging as a homosexual, I thought, well, that's a really good thing, and that's something I really want to explore, because it is a... I don't want to make any generalisations, but we know it's difficult in certain parts of the world to be out and gay, and it's something that I feel that we need to embrace and address in our literature and in our society. Uh, for those of you who, some of you might know that I think homosexuality is illegal in pretty much the whole of the um, Anglophone Caribbean, for sure, going back with laws going back, British colonial laws going back to the 19th century. In Africa at the moment, it's some terrible situations where in Nigeria, which is where my father's from, is punishable by 14 years imprisonment. In Uganda, they were trying to kill gays, you know, legally, and they've just kind of they're not doing that but again there's heavy prison sentences so it's a very important subject and it's a secret subject and a hidden subject so so as i be, as he began to emerge as a character and 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 gay i realized that it was you know not only was i writing the kind of black character in british fiction that you don't get which is an older black man he's 74 you don't get that in british fiction uh, but he was also gay, so he was defying the stereotype. So some of you might be familiar with black British fiction. You might know about Andrew Levy's novel, which was very celebrated, Small Island, um, Samuel Selvon's um, The Lonely Londoners, Kaz Phillips's The Final Passage, and many, many other novels have written about Barrington's generation of people from the Caribbean who came to England after the Second World War and settled and faced a lot of discrimination, racism, and so on and so forth. And those writers who write those narratives have written from a younger perspective, and always, without fail, a heterosexual perspective. Well, that's yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not you know, criticising that. But nobody imagines those people as those characters as older, but also as gay. So I felt that I was really um, subverting what people in Brit- mm-hmm. Brit- British people now... British people have not got a very strong sense of black British history, right? Going back, I have to say, 2,000 years. One of my books is about a black girl growing up in Roman London. Africans were in Britain 1,800 years ago. Mm -hmm. British people don't know that. 
They don't even know about the black presence from the 16th century, which is very well documented. Um, so, but they're very familiar with the post-Windrush generation because that I'm the second generation of, of black Britons, you know, of people who were the children of the immigrants who came from the former colonies. They're very familiar with that, but they're not familiar with what happened to that first generation or with them as having any kind of sexual identity that isn't heterosexual. So this is what was emerging as I was writing the book. And then, because I like to sort of destroy and smash stereotypes... I also made him somebody who actually doesn't feel embittered by the racism he encountered when he arrived. Okay. It's also that I don't want to keep writing the same story because people keep writing the same story. You came to Britain and suffered racism. Okay. Well, we know that it's, it's been done to death with literature, I have to say. So he's actually a character who's profited economically by living in Britain. He's a multimillionaire, Barrington. He worked at Ford's Motor Factory for most of his adult life. 40 years, but he bought, uh, does anybody know Hackney, Stoke Newington, London, it's, it's like um, uh, an area that was settled by a lot of immigrants, um, Caribbean people settled there after the war, and it was a very run-down, very poor area, it's now becoming an extremely rich area, and properties are going for millions of pounds, and he's somebody who bought these properties really cheap while he was working in the factory at Ford's, did them up, and has made a lot of money. So he's a rich man. He, he's also um, what he calls a positive thinker. He goes out raving. He's very fit. He's very healthy. Because when, sometimes when I talk about this, this character, before I go into any depth, people assume he's this poor old man sitting in his flat, unable to heat himself, really embittered and really destroyed by British society. And I wanted to show another viewpoint of somebody who's actually, in a sense, triumphed in British society. He lives in a very... Um, small world in Hackney and it's a very, it's not just the Caribbean world it's actually an Antiguan world so actually even though he's lived in London for 50 years he's almost like recreated his island home in that he's living in this small community and doesn't much go beyond it um, and he's a very well known figure, his wife also, he lives with his wife they, they also share the same bed and she also is part of this Antiguan community he has felt that he's never. He has felt that he hasn't been able to come out. His argument is that initially he's got these two daughters who are middle-aged. One's fifty, one's forty. His argument was that when he, they were younger, if he came out even to his wife, she would tell everybody because she's actually homophobic. His wife that she would tell everybody and he would lose his children. But what emerges through the novel, and I won't, don't want to give it away, but is that it's more complicated than that. He has been a homosexual, actively homosexual, but also hasn't really accepted himself. And he, he fears that he will be completely ostracised from the world that he knows, which is the small island community in Hackney, which is why he's lived this closet life for so long. Um, what else did I want to say about it? His children, his two daughters, are also successful professionals. Oh, so the other issue is that his wife, Carmel, as I said, has her own sections. So she's in her late 60s, and she's also a figure that's not represented in black British fiction. Beryl Gilroy, you might know, mm -hmm. who is from Guyana, she's, she died recently, and she was, you know, she died, she must be in about 80. She might almost be the only black writer who writes, has, who wrote older black characters. So older black women aren't really featured either. So Carmel, being an older woman, who is like the secondary protagonist, is also interesting. The two daughters, as I said, one's 50, one's 40, 
generally also aren't featured much in British fiction. Because what happens is, the writers who get published tend to be young, and they write from a young perspective. It's only as you get to my age, which is middle age, that you start to imagine the decades beyond you. <laughs> so there's a bit of Barry in me, you know, sort of aching joints and stuff, that you start to imagine the life beyond you. And then Barry has a grandchild called Daniel. Now, in Britain, young black boys are vilified in the media. Okay, they are, in a way, the most disenfranchised group of black people. I know it's the same here, for sure. Yeah, we're not at the same level in Britain, but it's there, and it's growing. And um, they're, they're seen, that they, they join gangs, and they do join gangs. And, um, you know, they don't do very well at school, they find it very hard to get employment, disproportionately represented in prison. That's a, that's a representation of young black men that we're familiar with in Britain. Daniel is privately educated, and plans to go to Harvard and then to do a PhD at Oxford. His, father, his grandfather has funded his education. So he's actually a really educated um, young boy who's actually doing so far, he's 17, doing very well in his society. So in all these ways, I just wanted to show alternatives to what people expect and what people um, know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, you are an educator distinguished professor at Hunter College, PhD. You grew up in a home that was rich in culture. Tell us about how your family, uh, I assume this may have inspired your love of learning. Tell us about the, the culture in your home. Well, I can, I agree with... Bernadine. I agree with... I have been writing all my life, all my books deal with um, um, black Characters who have who are professionals, who are middle to upper middle class. They have consistently been that, and I have consistently been criticised for this. Why don't you write about the folk? Why don't you write about, um, you know, the grassroots? Um, people say to me, and one of the reasons I say is I write, kind of write what I know, what I feel comfortable about. Um, but I also have the reason that. Um, Bundine has given, which is, come on, <laughs> we are diverse. We are not just simply this group of people. Um, so yeah, my family. Um, I read last night at the Center for Fiction, which is on Madison Avenue, and so you can imagine the audience, um, and and the audience was quite, were a lot of people, and I think that it's kind of mind-blowing for them to, to think, for me to say something like, I know my great-great-grandparents. Um, they were educators. I knew my grandfather was a headmaster, and he, he, he read both Latin and ancient Greek. Um, my, grand, my father was just at the top of his class. He ended up being a director of Shell Oil. Um, there are 11 of us, three of, uh, five boys, three of my brothers are doctors. One is uh, uh, um, actually, the other one is a su successful, whatever. My sisters are all, you know, every single one has uh, a high education. So I, I write, this is not a strange thing for me. And people sort of, I mean, I've written eight novels with characters like that, and they still ask me that question. Um, and then comes the memoir, and, they, and, I, and this is truth now. I'm not fictionalizing it. This is what happens. 
And it wasn't uncommon um, for my, um, my parents, my, particularly my father and his brothers, to speak to us in Shakespearean quotes, to behave, like ambition should be made of sterner stuff to make us work, you know? And these various quotes that just came flying at you all the time because you were expected to... Ma- we were good colonial people also. Um, so, it, it, and then I, I, a couple of years ago, I was invited by the Folger Shakespeare Library. They were doing an exhibit on called Shakespeare's Sisters, and they wanted 12 writers to write about... Um, you know, Virginia Woolf, in a room of her own, had envisioned Shakespeare's sisters that we haven't heard from them. So they, they, they invited these, these 12 women writers to write on that thing. And I wrote about something that was very, that I grew up with, um, namely that when Virginia Woolf died, in, in, and she comes from that, you know, she had that Bloomsbury group. There were Bloomsbury groups mushrooming all of Trinidad. And my grandmother had one in her, in her living room. And as a young girl, I mean, I met and dealt with all these people who were with my grandparents. Many of them have, been, have come to America I don't know if you know Pearl Connor Mogatsi. That's my father's sister. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and I grew up with my Aunt Pearl. Um, You know, um, in The Wiz, that guy who is... um, uh -uh. Holder. The Holders. Bosco and Jeffrey Holder. I mean, these were people who were just walking in and out of my um, grandparents' house. And so... It was good for me to write this in my memoir that I'm not just making this up. This is what. So, you know, when I was talking on Friday, I was, <laughs> you know, and I just want to say one thing about Akashic. I, I, um, to describe Akashic as a publisher that takes on African American and Caribbean writers is not quite accurate. Um, it's what it what it is. They say is they have a diverse um, yes. yes, and that and they have probably more white writers than they have black writers. But what is interesting about it, and I'm sure, um, I don't know why I want to call you Bernadette, and I know it's not, <laughs> but I somehow That's want to right, call you Susan. Bernadette, <laughs> no, the Saint Bernadette. Um, I think we both have the same story where I asked her, um, she successfully published in, in England, and I asked her, why is she published in Akashic? And she says, Akashic accepted me. And this is the same for me. So we are in a very dangerous position here in the United States, and Akashic is kind of like the savior. And thank God they're doing very well. <laughs> they're doing extremely well. Um, and and I don't intend to move from them, <laughs> no matter what. Can, can I just say a bit about my background? Um, my background is actually very different to yours, um, Susan. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. I have a cousin called Susan. <laughs> um, because but I, I came close to your name. I said you did. You did. I couldn't think what an e name. Um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Or Eliza. Eliza. I came close to your name. People call me all kinds of things, don't worry. I'm so used to it. Um, 
No, I come from a very working class family. Well, it's kind of sort of working class family. So I grew up, my father came to England in 49 from Nigeria. He said he came to study, but he didn't. He actually came to have fun and enjoy England, which he did. Um, and then he became a, a, a welder. So my, my father was a welder. He was also very politically active. He became politicised through coming to Britain because of the racism he experienced. And I write about him in my book, Lara, which is like a, it's a verse novel, but it's about my family history, including myself. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of fictionalised version of my family history. So he came to Britain, and um, he met my mother, because the African men who came to Britain usually came on their own, and the only women around were white women. And, of course, their eyes were just, like, you know, all over the place. And um, so he met my mother, who was a white English woman. And um, my mother was English, a bit of Irish and German in her ancestry. And she um, came from a working-class family who were aspiring to do well. Because my grandmother, my mother's mother, grew up in Islington, in the north of London, at the turn of the century. And people were poor, as I'm sure they were here. So everybody wanted to do well, and to do well would be to move into another class. So my grandmother put everything she could into my mother. She only had one child because she wanted the child to have everything that she didn't have. Um, And my mother was very placid, very obedient, did everything that she was told, went to a teacher's training college run by nuns, very Catholic family, and then she came home and she'd met my dad and she said she was going to marry this black man. 1954 or 53. That my grandmother grew up in a little suburb of London. My grandmother says she'd never seen any black people. You know, she'd never travelled. You know, um, she was living in this tiny, tiny little micro universe, um, and she worked at home, so she didn't even go out into a workplace to mix with different sorts of people. So my 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 grandmother um, went bananas, and the whole family tried to stop my mother doing this terrible thing, which was to marry a black man. My mother was very stubborn. She loved my dad. Um, she married him, but then she also then had eight kids in ten years. So, yeah, yeah, and she loved it, she loved it. So she had eight kids in ten years and wasn't working, my dad was a welder, so there was no money. But the story I grew up with was that my mother's family disapproved of us, and even though we knew my grandmother, because when my elder sister was born, she was mixed race, very light-skinned, and a beautiful little baby, and my grandmother fell in love with her. Because my grandmother, being as she was, didn't realise that if you have black, well, dark brown and off-white, you get a sort of beige (laughs) colour. And so that that, that then sort of made it acceptable to her. (laughs) But she never had any photos of us in her house, apart from my eldest sister as a baby, and she had eight grandchildren by her one child. So that was always the story that I grew up with, which was this disapproval. And members of the family never spoke to my mother ever again. So we had no money. We were growing up in a very white part of London, really felt like outsiders. And, um, and I think that was the making of me as a writer, in a way, because it was, I was always on the outside. I went to a school of 500 girls, only black girl there for most of my time there. Um, you know, obviously I had my brothers and sisters, but my father's family were in Nigeria, so we didn't grow up in a Nigerian environment at all. And it was only when I went to college that I met other black women and then became really radical and spent, <laughs> spent the 80s as a really radical black woman. You know, I could hardly talk to anyone who wasn't a black woman. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was what shaped me as a writer. But my mother was an English teacher. She went back to, to, to um, teaching when the kids were old enough. And she was an English teacher, so she loved language. But they were also both politically activist. My father was, you know, he was a trade union member. He was a local Labour councillor. And I feel that I've inherited that from him in my writing, which is always about 
you know, I like to stick the knife in. It's, it's kind of subversive, and I like to stir things up, and I don't want to write anything that's, that's kind of middle, what we call Middle England um, would, would find sort of easy to read. I like to challenge, challenge people's expectations and stuff. But often my characters are people who are outsiders, who are struggling. So even though Mr. Loverman is about this guy who's prosperous, he actually works in a factory. He is actually working class. But he's like your father in that he likes to spout Shakespeare because he's kind of self-educated. His struggle is really about his sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but characters that struggle are sort of the meat for me for, for writing stories. Do you want to ask me a question? I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Barry has um, kept quiet about his sexuality for many years, uh, but he has a couple of experiences that make it really difficult for him to continue doing this. I wonder if you'll share. Don't tell too much, Dan. What experiences? <laughs> what experiences? With his, well, with his, his oh, I can't talk about that. You're right, I can't talk oh, about that. Because okay. <laughs> it kind of gives, gives the game away. Oh. I will say something about... Um, you asked me, actually, earlier, was he based on anybody... Sorry. I want to hire the wife. That's what I'm yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she's interesting, Carvel. Yeah, she has she struggles, but she also has her triumphs as well. I had to give her a triumph. Barry is actually sexist, and I am a feminist. So as a writer, I'm writing a character who is goes against my principles in a way. He's also comic and charming and all those other things, but you know, sort of um, his his basic nature doesn't really understand women and doesn't really. <laughs> You know, doesn't definitely can't see his wife. Although things happen at the end that changes that. But you said, was he based on anybody that I know? No, his voice comes from an Antiguan friend of mine who I've known for over thirty years, and so I heard her voice when I was writing him. Um, and I definitely would not, anyway, go anywhere near a Jamaican um, character because partly because there are loads of Jamaican writers out there doing it. Also, it's a hot topic, and, you know, I didn't want to touch that, but I was very comfortable writing him, and nobody said he doesn't sound authentic, Joy. <laughs> he may not sound authentic when I read him, but they, they kind of get a sense of his voice. But so, so he was based on older black men that I know from the Caribbean and have known in my life who aren't gay. But since the book was published, a couple of older gay Caribbean men have approached me through Facebook, and kind of, I've kind of made contact with them. So that's interesting. In the closet. One of them's in the closet. Could I ask her a question? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it, it, this is go- absolutely going to show my ignorance. So let me start off with that <laughs> preface. What does he consider himself? I mean, I'm assuming he's having sex both with his wife and... The, and, and the Morris. Uh, and Morris, and he's have been, been ha- doing that for decades. So, how does he? F- uh, how do you? Well, maybe I should ask you not what he considers himself, but how do you present him? Yeah, on, on the, the, I won't go into it again. But the sex with the wife is not really happening. But he had two children. Yes, it, yes, but he did, it's not really happening. Oh, okay. Okay, hmm. he considers himself a barisexual. A bisexual. Barry sexual. Oh, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Ask him. <laughs> and so his wife doesn't his wife doesn't notice that he isn't having sex. She doesn't know, no. No, no. but she doesn't notice she's Oh she does, yes. Sex. I said she has a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. Although as I said, she has her triumphs. Because I couldn't I don't like writing victims. I didn't want to write somebody who has such a terrible life, you know. I like I like to write characters who even though they might be victims of circumstance, they're not victims. They they have as full a life as they can. Yeah. Hmm. I have a question for Elizabeth. Hmm. In writing the memoir, mm -hmm. and of course, as you've written as well, this is addressed to you also. How does your family read that? <laughs> what kind of feedback do you get, or do you get any? How does that come across for them? Well, I'm the American in my family. Um, meaning that at one point, uh, people, my siblings somehow came here for education or whatever and went back. And in fact, I just realized that there I have five sisters and I'm the only one that remained, that, you know, that eventually stayed here. And I like, I like, uh, there are lots of things I don't like about America, but what I love about America is the independence, the freedom, the ability to call a spade a spade and to say what you feel. And I guess that has boded me well as a writer. You know, I speak out, I say, but would get into trouble. So they are very nervous about anything I write. <laughs> so, I mean, the novels they're nervous about. And so I guess they're super nervous about <laughs> a memoir because this is telling them that. And they think it's in poor taste, um, you know, that you keep your skeletons in, your, in the closet, that you don't expose yourself. And, you know, if in the novel, fine, I can hide myself, nobody knows. Um, so I haven't heard from them. <clears throat> I have heard from one sister who's lived with me for a very long time and had a long-distance marriage for 12 years with somebody in Trinidad. I don't know how she did that. But anyhow, she's back there with him now. And, and she wrote nice things, you know, nice, 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 nice. And then you come to the end and she says, she doesn't like the way I presented my father. She thinks I presented him as a libertine. <laughs> and she's in big time denial because we both lived in the same house. And we knew what the arguments were about. And they were not quiet arguments, they were loud arguments. So, um, you know, I don't know what they're going to say. What can I say? I, and, and let me just add this piece. There are a lot of disadvantages to growing older. One of them is all your joints go out of joint. But one advantage of growing older is this is your time to tell the truth. And I've been a truth seeker in a funny, in a hidden way through novels. Although I think I've told, you know, I've, it's not all that hidden. And so now I, you know, it's the truth. It's my truth. And you have to deal with it. I, I'm not going to do something to deliberately hurt you. But I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the quest of the truth. So I don't know what they think. I don't know what they're going to think. I really don't. Um, I have an interesting question. I wanted to know, uh, learn more about the connection between Jewish and Muslim 
Absolutely. I do. Can you say more about it? We share a common background in the African American and Jewish community. We have our Passover holiday starting early next week, but it means a lot to both of our traditions. So I just wonder is there an angle or connection? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you two things. One of them is when those ships were coming from Europe to America and that got turned back, for instance, the ship carrying Anne Frank came to St. Louis, Missouri, and was turned back. So all the big thing about Anne, Anne Frank's diary and let's everybody read it doesn't say that America turned Anne Frank back. Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. She they, Oh, yeah, because they're quotas. They're quotas, quotas, quotas. And the other piece to that is that the Caribbean took a lot of the Jews from Europe. And we have offshore islands in Trinidad, and a lot of the Jewish people, especially the German Jews, um, lived in those offshore islands. And my very good friend, whose father was the chief medical officer, was their doctor. Of course, when everything settled, a lot of them moved back um, to Europe or to Israel. But Trinidad took them on those, maybe not on the mainland, but on the offshore islands, which are pretty beautiful. The other piece is that my name originally was Nunes, N-U-N-E-S. And my great-grandfather came from Madeira, and we can trace that it was a Jewish family. And we, and I, you'd have to read the novel, I mean the memoir, to say that most Portuguese who come to the Caribbean are Roman Catholic. He was Presbyterian. And it fits because those, they, 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 they became Catholic to hide. And then the, 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 Portuguese, the, the, the Portuguese said, too bad that you're hiding, we know you're still Jewish. And um, some, there was a Presbyterian movement that said, okay, we'll take you. And so a lot of the Jews then moved from Catholicism to Presbyterianism. So it's very rare that you would have a, a Jewish person coming, I mean, a Portuguese person coming to the Caribbean who's Presbyterian and not Catholic. And my grandfather was like anti-Catholic, although my father married a Catholic. And the other thing, too, he went into, you'd have to read it, um, that it goes on and on. And why it is we changed, we took the S off and put the Z in our name, which was my father who did that. So there are a lot of Caribbean connections. And um, there's a research institute for the study of man in Manhattan on 70-something street. Jane Gregory Rubin does it, and the Reed Foundation. And they have been going to the Caribbean and tracing the, 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 um, the Jewish immigration in the Caribbean. And that the Caribbean took, these, took them during, um, during, the, during that period in, in Europe where America turned them back. You know the story of the Exodus, right? And the story of the Exodus is that ship coming back and back and nobody's taking. 
it's funny how we rewrite history. It's amazing. It's amazing. I have a comment and then a question, if I may. First, thank you both for your addition to the global literature field, if I may say that. Uh, I came this evening especially interested in the, uh, the Black Queer edition. You might be shot for one title, if I'm not <laughs> exaggerating. I can't wait to read it. But my question I would like to ask you, uh, it seems to me as I read, I read a lot of reviews as opposed to the actual novels, it seems to be an explosion of especially African literature. Donna must go. Uh, Chiamanda. Chimamanda and Ngozi Adichie. blowing up, especially after Beyonce sampled her <laughs> on the newest album. Even the younger generation knows this Nigerian writer, uh, a young uh, male writer from Sierra Leone. Uh, who's Tejukul? That? No, he's, no, not he's Nigerian. Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Somebody, I just read about him in a Sunday New York Times uh, book review. No, he's from Ethiopia. But oh, oh, um, Manzuzu. Okay. Yeah. He's a wonderful writer. Oh, I love him. So what, my question is, what do you attribute, because you're from the other side of the pond, as they say, what do you attribute this explosion in, in my mind? Okay, so, so we were just talking, talking about, about this about earlier, that. weren't mm -hmm. we? So it's very interesting. Um, in, so so the, the people who were first publishing these, the new crop of African writers were the British, I think. They were initiating it. Mm -hmm. So up until about 14 years ago, when the Kane Prize for African Fiction was, was um, introduced, which has been an amazing prize that a lot of writers have gone through. They've either been shortlisted for the prize or they've been on its... Um, they, they run a, an annual workshop in Africa different parts of Africa. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie was one of somebody who attended that workshop. So the Kane Prize, uh, so, so before the Kane Prize um, happened, African writers could not, white, uh, black African writers could not get published in Britain. It was, there was a dearth of literature. So there was like uh, Ben Okri, who won the Booker Prize, mm -hmm. who was published, you know, he was published in the 80s and still is published. Shoyinka. Shoyinka, you see. But the thing is, Shoyinka really is from the 70s and mm -hmm. 80s, mm -hmm. Chinua Achebe, the yeah, same. Yeah. So you've got these kind of old sort of iconic figures who were published, first published in the 50s, like Chinua Achebe was first published in the 50s. And then there was like 10 or 20 years where nobody could get published. The Kane Prize, which was introduced by this guy called Sir Michael Kane, not the actor, decided he wanted to do something about it. So that then started to throw the spotlight on African fiction. And ever since then, African fiction in Britain has gained currency. Now, Chimamanda is sort of the leading, the sort of star at the moment. She's the one who's kind of, whose star is, is shining brightly. And as a result of that, I think it's kind of um, increased the sort of publisher's appetite for certain kinds of African fiction. So fiction by African women in particular is a craze at the moment. Now, the reason I say at the moment is because black British writing was a bit of a craze 10 or so That's years right. ago, but it was a, it was a trend. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, we have black British writers. In the 80s, in the 80s, they were publishing, in the 80s, they were publishing African-American women writers, Toni Morrison, Gloria Nain, and Michelle Cliff, whose yeah. work I used mm -hmm. to love. You know, well, she's not African-American, she's Jamaican, but, you know, they were publishing those writers, and they would literally say to British writers, there is no market for your work. Mm -hmm. So we were so marginalised in British society, they said nobody would want to read your work, not even thinking that there would be a black British readership for our work. So then the African-American women writers came, and they blew up, but they had first been published in America, so the British were just kind of like, you know, 
jumping onto the bandwagon in the way, and they were the big influences on me as a writer. And then we had this uh, period where there was some black British literature was blowing up, and then it kind of blew down. And there are just a few people still remaining. I'm, I'm one of them. And now we've got this African, women in particular, African fiction. Yeah, yeah. and movies are being made. Yes, Half of the Yellow Sun and stuff. Yeah. So. Oh, and British right. actors. That's right. Yeah. So it's great. It's great that these and they're good writers. You know, a lot of these yeah. novelists are really good writers, and it's really good that it's great that they're out there. It's great that they're pub, they're getting published. But I really worry because I'm, I'm I've been around long enough to know that there will be this. You know, eventually they'll be saying, "Oh no, we've done African women writers. You know, what are we going to do now? Something else." And then maybe one or two will remain, and the rest will be disappear, and, and then they can't get published. But, um, but uh, you know, America supports that too. Yeah. What, what is her name again? Chimamanda Ngozi yeah. Support. She is supported by the Ivy League institutions, yeah. and the Ivy League institutions have placed her over in the in the correct places. But I'll tell you a little nasty story about that and why I'm having a hard time remembering her name, okay. because I had published a novel called Bruised Hibiscus, which did. Oh. Oh which did pretty well and had gone through all its stuff. And so when someone told me that someone had published a novel called Purple Hibiscus, I said, no. No. That is too darn close. And then when somebody told me what the topic was, I said, no. That is right there. So I haven't read the novel, and one day I'm going to read the novel, but I thought, gee, I cannot read this novel. Uh, uh, huh? It is good, yeah. No. No. No, I just got, you know, what happened? Yeah. What, 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 I tell you what bothered me, well, first, it, the closeness, but the other thing that bothered me is how they are controlling they are controlling the, 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 the literary world for black people. And, of course, they will continue to control it until we understand that writing is one thing and the industry is something else. And until we understand that publishers will publish Jello or a sneaker if there's a market for it. They are not worried about, is this good literature? Of course, when they publish it, they'll say this is the best literature anybody has ever written. And they will make sure that it gets in the right venues. And they will make sure, because I sit on enough literary panels, many times, judges, as the only black person. And if you ever wanted to get yourself blown out, you would, it's amazing. It is amazing. It's they know who they want to get this prize, and it's tied to the industry. Make no mistake about it. You're not going to get a prize that isn't tied to the industry. And sometimes it's just so blatant, it just depresses you. I mean, I, I sit on but, panels as well, and I'm always trying to make a difference and trying to stop that sort of thing. This is in the UK, trying to stop that sort of thing happening. And, you know, you, uh, the things you're saying are the sort of things I say. Mm -hmm. But we also need to look at solutions, you know. That, and that, that is to set up our own publishing houses. No, no, no. Increase our readership and all those things. You know, I want to say, I want to disagree with you. 
Bernadine. Because I have been around this mulberry bush for many, many years. And the publishing, um, setting up the own publishing company is the end of it. The, the thing that has to be done is audience development. That is the thing. To make black writers, black, black audiences, understand something that Sonia Sanchez says. She came before a conference and she says, my God, do you realize that you, are going to, that you can silence me? And the only reason I am still speaking is because white women are buying my books. That's what she said. Do you want to say something? You know? Thank you. So, 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 so um, I, I've seen a lot of black, black publishing companies start, and they fizz. Yeah, me too. But, but it's, it's the it's audience. It's a big issue, though. It's about, you know, it's the, the thing audience. is we can't give up on the fact that we also need to control the means of production. We shouldn't give up on that, even though we no, know that no, no, companies no. have come and gone. Look at Akashic Books. You know, it's not run by a black guy. Uh, but he, put, he, he made money through music. He put it into setting up a publishing house, which, as far as I understand it, is doing very well. You know, so we need to look at, especially America, all the money in America, the African-American money, you know, needs investment in publishing as well. So, but anyway, anyway. No, that's a fact. You are absolutely correct. We have time for one more question. <laughs> I was originally, yeah. I don't really write much anymore. Unless someone pays me, I'll write a poem. I'm a poet, actually. I wrote a poetry memoir. Oh, a poetry memoir. Parents at age two, they went to London to England. And I just wrote a poetry memoir about a topic that we don't really aren't supposed to talk about. So my family hasn't really commented on the book. What's the topic? It's my life, you know, being separated from my parents when they went to... I was a student to study, and I was raised by that fraternal grandparents, and I talk about the issues that come out of that abandonment, you know, trying mm-hmm. to be reconnected with my mom when we moved to Canada, the typical mm-hmm. character. Um, I chose to self-publish, so I think that's something I wanted to just, want, I wonder what your thoughts are on it. I'm also a member of a group in Baltimore called the Black Writers Guild, and most of the writers in that group are self-published. I also do marketing PR for a living, so I'm trying to educate them on how to maneuver that path. But I, I am curious to know, um, even in writing my book and self-publishing, I'm so me. I've started winning a few poetry awards and it's on my own, so I know how to work. Mm. Just wondering what your thoughts on self-publishing, because I also see that limitation, and I know the literary world is, is its own, but there are also writers out here who are you know, it's, it's changed because we have the e-readers now as well. And, you know, there are writers selling millions of copies of their books, genre writers, actually completely bypassing the industry. In fact, Fifty Shades of Grey, which I haven't read, but I've heard all about it, isn't that a book that was originally a huge internet success? So actually, 
If you'd have asked me a few years ago, I would have said... I, I would, well, certainly, I'm only talking from a British perspective. I would have said, try and get yourself published by a mm. publisher because that will give you the sort of stamp of authority and they will know how to distribute your book and reach a readership and get it reviewed and stuff like that. But I think everything is changing. People are reviewing on blogs. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? So it's like, if you self-publish a book... If I were to self-publish a book, I would create a publishing house and nobody would know it would be my publishing house and I would self-publish it that way so that, so that it wouldn't look like it was me doing it. Um, but I think, I, think it's, I think you have to be um, uh, enterprising and imaginative if you want your work out there. And then because you have your background, you can, you can actually reach an audience. Mm -hmm. And what's happening with some writers is they start out self-published, I know at least two, and because they market it while they do PR, then they get picked up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in most situations, they would probably not have ever gotten a publisher, but they chose to use the e-book route as, yeah. as a medium. Yeah. So I'm just curious. I mean, that's the by, by any means necessary, really, because why should we have these publishing houses being the gatekeepers and the tastemakers for our creativity. In the UK, publishing house 99.9% .9 white. You know, I mean, this is not personal. It's, it's just, a, you know, it's not fair. And we want to have control of what we're doing. So I do know a writer, Helon Habila, who won the second Kane Prize that I mentioned. He was living in Nigeria. He published a book of short stories, pretended it was with the publishing house, made it up, put it in for the Kane Prize, won it, then he, uh, my publisher's Penguin, he, Penguin then said, well, publish it as a novel. It was a book of short stories, but one character. So they then took the self-published book, turned it into a novel simply by kind of jigging some things around. Uh, he's now teaching in America. He's got a great career. What's his name? Helon Habila. He's from Nigeria, Helon Habila. But that first book was a self-published work. So he was really resourceful. In, mm -hmm. in terms of, and got him out of Nigeria because he can't really survive as a writer in Nigeria, and he's now in the States. So, so just do your thing, you know, and that self publishing might become a publishing house. Well, and you know that the publishing industry, I mean, um, Greg and I read Publishers Weekly every week, and what is it, once a month, they have a whole section of, I mean, they are starting to review. Um, self-published book, you know. Oh. And, um, I mean, it's, and it's pages and pages and pages of reviews wow. of self-published work. So I think that there's a real, you know, that, to me, that is a trend. I mean, I don't, yeah. that just started, like, last year. And believe me, the industry follows that very closely. For, for talent. What the, but I, I, I just want to say um, something about this. I'm connected to what Bernadine said. Not Bernadette. Bernadine said. For me, one of the reasons why black publishing companies fall through in my experience of knowing a lot of them, is that there's always some kind of conflict going on between the, 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 the interests of publishing and the interest of the publisher of publishing finding a venue for his or her own work. Why I think Akashic works is that everybody in Akashic, and I've known them for maybe 10 years, whether they want to be writers or not, I have never found it. It's hidden. 
They are, everybody in that company is simply devoted to finding a way to distributing and marketing the works they publish. It's, it's, their, it's their, their total focus, which is why I think they succeed. I mean, they are just, it's, there is no conflict there. And um, I mean, this is going back, you know, I, I, I was one of the co-founders of the National Black Writers Conference way, way back, and that had been the mantra, yeah, with John Oliver Killens. I did it for 18 years. So that has been the mantra. Let's have our own publishing venue. Yes, but I think what we need to find is some MBAs, some business people, people who are business-oriented, who understand that the publishing industry is a business. And I am going to take this product, and I am going to market and this. And that, I think, is the success of Akashic. You walk in there, and every single person in there is devoted to distributing and marketing and finding a place for the books that they do, which is why they're being so successful. Just one point about uh, criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the Book of Mormon, the show on yeah. Hollywood? So when it came out, they had huge posters all over London, and they had quotes from Twitter. And I didn't think it was anything less than having a Sunday Times, Daily Telegraph, yeah. Guardian quote. I just thought, oh, that's, that's clever. And there were all these quotes. I mean, of course, they could have set them up themselves. But the fact is, it was Twitter. They, was, they were having quotes from Twitter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I think all of us have to be marketers. I mean, I'm in the newspaper business. Every day I get 500 calls from five different people who have written a book and they want me to write a book. <laughs> to review of it. <laughs> we even have a little book club going in our mm -hmm. It's so exhausting. It's exhausting. And lots of the black writers, so many don't write sophisticated books, they're smart. They start selling them out of the trunk of their car. And once they've so I know one woman who sold sixty thousand copies of a book and then she was picked up by a publisher. But Joy, why don't why do we need to do that? I mean Bernadine said that was talking about was I don't want to make a mistake. Bernadine was talking about all these very rich black entrepreneurs. I mean, who have billions of dollars. And all they do, no, but all they're doing is buying bigger houses and bigger boats and bigger. I mean, they could, okay, they can't read, maybe not, and they can't write, maybe not. But they must understand the value of publishing, and they would be the excellent. But it's, but it's interesting. No, it's the Washington Times. Maybe we can get it just like the black. <laughs> Jay Z, Jay Z, and Beyonce could. Exactly, so that's what we need. 
Actually, Def- Elizabeth, I hadn't really thought of that, you know, getting business people set because usually it's somebody's doing it because they're passionate about that's it. Right, yeah. And they're coming from the arts. It's the bit, that's who does right, it. You're right, it's the business. That is why Akashic is successful. Yeah. They are businessmen. I mean, they, they have a good editor, mm. but they are, bi- and those girls that are, they are young women, who are in there, they are business people. Everyone, you heard yeah. it here first. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thank you, Bernadine.